This is Movies for the Blind, Episode 210, Judge Priest, Part 2 of 2. Yes, Lord, cause tomorrow he's got to be like Mr. Samson, saving Daniel from the lion's den. Welcome to Movies for the Blind, where you can enjoy films without looking at a screen. I'm Valerie Hunter. We continue with Judge Priest, and starring alongside Will Rogers is a man who was named Lincoln Perry, an intellectual who wrote regularly for the major African-American newspaper, the Chicago Defender, rubbed shoulders with the elites, and lived an extravagant lifestyle as maybe the first black movie star. But everyone knew him by another name and persona considered by many to be an insult to his race. He was known as Steppen Fetchit, and his persona in films was as lazy, dim-witted, and subservient to whites. His comedic talent made the persona easy to like, and some thought it was playing dumb to get white people to do his work for him. But Fetchit's popularity also made it safe for whites to think of all black people as useless, slow, and stupid. And the more African Americans made strides in civil rights, the more they worked to put Fetchit far behind them. He starred in five films with Will Rogers, who'd had black friends and mentors throughout his life. And Fetchit said that when people saw them together on screen as friends, that made a pretty big positive statement. History remembers things a bit differently. In this film, Fetchit's character Jeff and Judge Priest are indeed friends, though not really on an even footing, which maybe couldn't have been expected in a Kentucky town only 30 years after the Civil War. The judge's sister-in-law, Carrie, has her own prejudices toward her son's sweetheart, Ellie Mae, because her mother is dead and her father is unknown. So the son, Rome, sneaks off to see her when he can as he looks for his first case as a lawyer. He'll get one soon, as we get into the conclusion of Judge Priest. Another day at Flem's Barbershop. Gillis sits on a bench as the judge enters. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Judge. You next. Say, Flem, you got the only lively spot in town. (laughs) He turns to a man reading a tabloid. Here, Gabby, what's the latest news in the paper this morning? He steps to a bearded man in Flem's chair. Hello, Lodge. Howdy, Judge. Hey, you ain't been in lately, have you? <laughs> he turns to the bench, where Gillis has his head down. Good morning, Mr. Oil. The judge sits down beside him. Nice day. Yeah. Oh, Flem, here she comes. Flem looks out the front window and watches Ellie May walk by carrying a book. And does she like her Flemish? Another barber turns to him. Hey, Flem, when you two getting hitched? Don't know it, I heard nobody talking about (laughs) marriage. You ain't scared of no shotgun wedding, are you? Gillis sits up. Not as long as she ain't got no paw. Gillis bolts from the bench and slugs Flem, who falls to the floor. The man with the paper helps him up as Gillis takes his jacket to the door and leaves. The judge stands. Say, that fellow's going to make himself mighty unpopular around here. That's right, Judge. Yeah. There's about 2,000 male citizens here that's going to be mighty sore at him. Yeah. When they find out that he punched you in the jaw before they could. Step into a shelf. 
the judge takes down a shaving cup with his name on it. Yes, he's going to be awful unpopular around here. <laughs> the judge leaves. Later in his yard, he gathers with Jimmy, Feldsberg, and Doc Lake for croquet. Oh, I got the grounds. All right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you choose up with them. Tossing a mallet upside down to the judge, Doc goes hand over hand with him up the handle till the judge gets to the top and keeps the mallet. Who's not Herman? Yes, sir. In her kitchen, Dilsey prepares julep glasses while Jeff plays harmonica. She leaves the table with a bounce in her step. Jeff taps a tambourine on his leg as Dilsey gets something from a cupboard. A jug, which she carries back to the table, but pauses briefly when Jeff spots it. She pours some whiskey into the glasses. She scowls at him and keeps pouring. She sets the jug down away from him and picks up the glasses on a tray. Jeff reaches for a donut. Hey! He drops the tambourine. Cut them monkey shines. How you expect the judge to win that croquet game with no solace in his stomach? She leaves, and Jeff picks up the tambourine. Hey, Dusty, you done forgot the jug. The jug here. All right, you can't stay. I never told you now. Leaving somebody here with all this stuff. I bet she gonna blame me. He gets a donut and a napkin in his pockets. Meanwhile, Gillis stands at a bar. Don't see you around much. No. He whittles. Trying to keep to yourself, don't you? Yeah. The bartender serves him a mug of beer. And Gillis drops his knife on the bar and sets down a pipe. In the next room... Y'all get some more beer while I unlock me that 14 ball down there in the corner. As Flem plays pool, one of his friends opens a saloon door to the bar and turns back. Hey, Flem, Gillis is out there. Yeah? Yes. Come on, let's get it. Don't hold your horses now. He'll be heading to you in a minute going home. Flem turns his cue stick. Fellas with me? Sure. Sure. All three hold their cues up with both hands and wait at the doors. At the bar, Gillis drinks and sets down his mug. Another? Nope. He reaches into his pockets to pay, then picks up his pipe, knife, and work apron. He steps away from the bar, heading for the swinging saloon doors. He steps through them. One of the friends falls back through the doors. Flem follows him to the floor. The bartender goes to Flem. Flem holds his arm. At the main door, Gillis looks at his knife. Defeated, Gillis drops the knife and sadly leaves. Later, Rome runs around corner. Jeff opens the judge's front gate for him, and Rome stops. He runs to the croquet game, where the judge is taking a shot. He moves two balls next to each other, disputing a call with Doc. He hits the ball he moves through a wicket, then hits again and misses the final peg. Jimmy takes a shot, 
and hits the peg. <laughs> Jimmy and the judge shake hands. You don't see how the South ever lost the war with a guy that could argue like you did. <laughs> Uncle Billy. Uh, what is the matter? You've already made me lose the game. Uncle Billy, I got a client. Oh, who is it? What's the matter with him? Gillis, you know, Mr. Bagby's man. Huh? What's that, Bob Gillis? What's he doing? He cut up Flem Talley. Yeah? Uh-huh, and right after he gave himself up, he sent for me. Well, I'll be kicked by a mute. Did he cut him bad? Well, I can't tell yet. Gee, Uncle Billy, he sent for me. It'll be the, the biggest case in your whole court session, and I'll be defending him. Uh, well, I, I, I wouldn't blow too soon now. Oh, don't you worry. Hey, Ellie May! Rome runs off. Yeah, I'm going, I'm going to get down to the jail and see what that fellow's got to say for yourself. I'm going to be yeah, telling. Darn robbers, they robbed us out of that. Herman, now, uh, you better get on down there with me, because uh, you'll be able to get a chance to uh, go as bail. Next door. Ellie May! Ellie Mae, I got a client. Oh, no, I knew you would. Come on over. I want you to talk to Uncle Billy and tell you all about it. At the gate. Sort of novelty, Herman. The barber getting cut up. Whoever cut him up couldn't have cut him much if they used the barber's razor. Herman leaves, and Carrie arrives. Where's Rose? I won't have it, that's all. He's getting mixed up with that kind of people. Oh, what's he done now? Well, he's done enough. The judge sits on the porch steps. When Rome brings Ellie May over, Carrie turns away. Mother, what's the matter? Something wrong? If you're in the habit of discussing your affairs before strangers, I'm not. Well, Ellie May's not a stranger. Excuse me, Rome, I'll go. No, wait. All right. I have nothing to hide. Carrie, what's the matter? Have you, have you been out in the sun too much? You shut up, William Priest. I hold you responsible for everything that's happened. Are you going to defend that man? Mr. Gillis? <laughs> you bet I am. Oh, no, you're not. Mother, what do you mean I'm not? I suppose you know what's behind this drunken brawl? No? Well, then I'll tell you. They were fighting over that girl in a saloon. Mother, that's not so. Carrie, you can accumulate more misinformation in a shorter time than anybody who told you all this rigmarole. Virginia made you. Who? Virginia made you. Oh. She got it straight from her father. And brought it straight to you. She wanted to warn Rome. Ellie May faces Carrie. I know you've never liked me, Mrs. Priest. I know you've tried to stop Rome from going with me. And I know you think I'm not good enough for him. But let me tell you something. The judge pats her back. If Rome were half as mean as you are, he wouldn't be good enough for me. She stalks off. Well, of all things. Yeah? <laughs> Looks like you run second. Oh, no, I don't. If Rome's father were alive, he'd back me up. Rome's already got himself talked about all over town with this girl, and I'm not going to have him publicly defending her in court. Well, Rome, <clears throat> see how your mother feels about it, so... Looks like you lost your first client. It's certainly hard to get, too. No, Uncle Billy, I haven't lost anything. Rome! Mother, I think I'm old enough to know my own mind. I said I'd defend Mr. Gillis, and I'm going to go through with it. Rome walks away. Later, the courtroom fills with spectators. Right this way, Reverend. Have that chair there, please, Jimmy takes his coat from Ashby's chair, and Herman hands him a fan. The judge's friends sit behind the Reverend. The sheriff leads Gillis to the defendant's table. Before he sits, 
He trades looks with Ashby, who glances down and away. Slowly, Gillis sits, with Rome standing beside him holding books. Gillis looks down sadly. Setting down the books, Rome looks around with a smile. He nods to Ellie May, who holds her hands in prayer, glancing up, then smiles brightly. A jury of men assemble, including the one who'd looked for a spittoon earlier. Chewing, he looks again. When he leans over a railing, another man stops him. He spots an upturned hat, which another man pulls away. Everyone stands. The judge approaches his bench. Court now called order. Everyone sits except for the sheriff and Maydew, who steps up to the bench. May it please the court. I would point out that for many years, a political and personal difference has existed between your honor and myself. Now that I am a candidate for the exalted office which you have held for so many years, those differences have reached a point where for the protection of the people, I must demand an impartial trial judge. Uh, perhaps I'm, I'm getting deaf, but uh, the fact had, had never reached me before. Are you insinuating that you won't get full justice in this court? I maintain that my language was sufficiently plain for any comprehension, however obtuse. But I will make it even franker. I charge, in the presence of two witnesses, you took sides with Defendant Gillis in a prior attack upon this plaintiff. Flem sits with his arm in a sling and a bandage around his head. I've been sitting on this bench for nigh on 20 years, and nobody has ever asked me to step down. I'll file an affidavit of prejudice. That won't hardly be necessary. Then I call upon you, Judge Priest, to vacate the bench during this trial and yield your place to a qualified judge. The judge shifts uncomfortably, pulling a rag from his pocket, then picking up the pipe he dropped from the rag. He puts the pipe in his mouth for just a moment. I, uh... He puts the pipe away while wiping his brow with the rag. Uh, I'm... I'm not denying, Senator, that you... Well, you kind of took my breath away. I guess I had, uh, just... sort of... got the habit that I was... took for granted here... on this bench. Gosh, I was... I'd put me a raise in this... He wipes his face. In this courtroom. And stands. When I quit fighting... And steps away. 65. He looks up to a portrait of Robert E. Lee. For what we thought was right. Then turns to the gallery. I kind of calmed down. Found out I... I couldn't lick the whole United States. I come back here to my hometown and I put up my shingle. It wasn't long before I was sitting on that bench. 
He steps to it again. Maybe I did have a hankering for the spirit of the law. He picks up the gavel. Not the letter. But as far as I know, nobody ever found cause to complain. Till now. He puts the gavel down. Now you, uh... He picks up his hat. You jury. You forget everything that I've said. He steps off the bench. And, uh... My feelings has, uh, no place in the, uh... In the records of, of this trial. Now, if you will excuse me, neither side has any objection. I'd like to ask the Honorable Floyd Fairley if he won't come up here and take take my. My on the bench. He steps down past Rome and fairly stands. The two judges shake hands. Judge Priest walks to the gate and getting a sympathetic look from Carrie as she opens it, Jimmy stands as the judge walks through the gallery and out of the courtroom into the sun. Putting on his hat, he walks down the steps and onto the sidewalk. Soon after, with Fairley on the bench. Well, what happened then? Maydew addresses the jury. Gentlemen of the jury, in plain language, the defendant here burst in upon these three worthy citizens. Rome stands. I object, Your Honor. I demand that my client ever burst into any place or anything. Objection sustained. So be it, Your Honor. Nevertheless, I shall demonstrate that my young friend's client here did burst into something. That armed with a lethal weapon, to wit, a dirk, dagger, or knife of deadly length and deadly sharpness, which he holds, he burst into Mr. Talley's quivering flesh. I object, Your Honor. Objection sustained. Your Honor's humble servant bows to Your Honor's august ruling. In due time... He sets down the knife. Mr. Talley's scarred and mutilated person... The juror, looking for a spittoon, finds one at Maydew's feet. ...with a silent eloquence far exceeding the powers of my... He spits. (laughs) The sheriff steps to the spittoon and moves it a couple feet away. Later, Rome has Flem on the witness stand. We was playing bottle pool when he come in and attacked at me. Didn't you attack him with a billiard cue? Not until after he come at me, but a knife. One of the friends testifies. Well, it's just like Flem says. We wasn't paying him no mind until he come looking for Flem. But weren't you three all armed with billiard cues? Well, never heard of nobody playing pool without him. The other friend. It's just like Flamin' Joe says. He come in looking for trouble. You don't like the defendant, do you? Who does? Rome looks back at Ellie May. He bites her lip nervously. Your Honor, the defense is through with the witness. 
Rome returns to the defendant's table. I should think my young learned colleague would be glad to be through with the witness. <laughs> Your Honor, the prosecution rests. The juror hits the spittoon again. The sheriff picks it up and moves it around the prosecution's table. He steps away as the witness leaves the stand. Before the defense proceeds, this court recesses for half an hour. Everyone stands and chats. In a room soon after. I don't know why you did it, Mr. Gillis. The judge priest told me what happened in the barbershop. Oh, you've got to tell the jury. They'd never convict you in a million years if they knew you were defending a girl's name. Don't you see? You can't think of me now. You've got to think of yourself. Look, Mr. Gillis, I don't want to bring Ellie May's name into this thing any more than you do. But she's right. They can give you ten years for assault. And the way May do is working on the jury, they'll give you the limit. Well, you've got to tell the truth, Mr. Gillis. Don't you see? You've got to. I ain't going to tell them anything. Ellie May and Rome look gravely at each other. Later, Gillis is on the stand. Yes, sir. Tally lied all the way through. And Herringer and Gab Ride, they lied too. It was three against one in Billy Gaynor's back room, and it's three against one in this here courtroom. Have you ever been in any other cutting scrape in town before? No, sir. That's all. Gillis gets up. One moment. Maydew stands, and Gillis sits again. The prosecution approaches. Where do you come from, Mr. Gillis? I was saying. You aren't exactly what we southerners would call a sociable person, are you? I mind my own business. Precisely. Except when you go looking for trouble. I don't go looking for trouble. But I ain't the one to run away from it. How long have you had a grievance against Mr. Tally? Mm, we had a run-in a few days before he jumped me. Oh, run-in, eh? And what was this run-in about? Well, well, come on, tell the jury. What did you hate him for? I ain't a saying. Then you didn't have any reason for knifing. I didn't say that. Well, make up your mind. Why can't you hate him? I ain't a saying. Your Honor. Maydew steps away. Anything further? That's all, Your Honor. The defense rests. Gillis leaves the witness stand. This court will adjourn till tomorrow morning. It is our hope that the summations will be brief so that we may all attend the reunion ceremonies which begin at noon. That night, Ashby goes to the priest house where Jeff is on the steps and the judge gets up from his rocking chair. Well, well, Ashby. The judge shakes the reverend's hand. This is a pleasure. Uh, Well, uh, I don't get a chance to do this often. You certainly does me honor. Jeff moves another chair beside the judges. Make the Reverend comfortable, lad. Jeff hands Ashby a fan, and the two white men sit. It, it uh, looks like you uh, kind of caught me red-handed there. The judge blocks Jeff from picking up his julep from the floor. Well, could I, uh, no, uh, kind of in bagel? Uh, been a long, tiresome day, and uh, it's uh, mostly mint. No, thank you, William. I appreciate your subtlety. You know, I kind of thought that... Uh, he sets it back down. ...that you'd be working on your Memorial Day address uh, uh, tomorrow. Well, that'll take care of itself. 
What I'm worried about is this poor devil of Gillis. You know Gillis? Ashby nods. My trade takes me into queer quarters sometimes. I feel just as sorry for that fellow Gillis as you do. Uh, I'm, I'm plumb out of it. Hot got the best of me. He sure did. Case is closed. It's all settled. I don't think Hart will, uh, he'll be fool enough to uh, reopen the case for nobody or nothing. Ashby moves his chair closer. William, I have a duty to perform. The Christian's duty. I'm going to violate the sacred confidence of another. I'm going to break a pledge of secrecy because it's the only course that I see that lies before me. I'm listening, Ashby. Twenty-five years ago. Later, with an envelope reading Justice nearby, the judge writes at a desk in the house as Dilsey dusts. Folks ain't been acting just right. Maybe his stomach's been complaining and he needs a party this night. He joins in. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Cause tomorrow he's got to be like Mr. Samson. Save and then you're from the lion's den. folds the paper he was writing on and puts it in the envelope. He gives Jeff the envelope. See that he gets that, but don't you let him know how he got there. That's see? all I got to do, sir. Yeah. Say, wait a minute. Can, can, can you play Dixie on that thing there? Well, that coon coat. Yes, I played Dixie with Martin through Georgia. Oh, way ahead. Martin through Georgia. Yeah. I got you out of one lynching. Yes, but for that coon coat, I know that. Jeff leaves. Playing marching through Georgia, I'll join the lynchers. Next day, a banner in the town square says, Welcome Confederate Veterans. Dilsey walks to the busy square. Hello, children. Howdy, Dilsey. What do you all got in your bed? Oh, the chicken. Chicken. <laughs> well, that's just what I got. That's what the judge likes. People in uniform and period costumes prepare for the parade. Jimmy calls from the window of the courthouse. Inside. I'm telling you, Sheriff, we lost the bass drum. How could you lose a bass drum? Someone stole it. We need it for the parade. Jeff has it outside with the raccoon coat and the top hat. With bells on one ankle, he sits on a curb outside another open courthouse window, careful to pull the coat away from getting dirty. Inside, the jury convenes, some of them in their old uniforms. In his old coat, 
the spittoon juror directs a comrade to the jury box. And chewing takes his own place in front. Gallery and jury sit. You may begin your summation, Mr. Prosecutor. Maydu holds the envelope. Hey, please, Your Honor. Since adjournment yesterday, certain information has come into the hands of the Commonwealth, which, in the interest of justice, impels me to reopen the case. The Commonwealth desires to recall the defendant Gillis for further cross-examination. Very well, Mr. Maydu. Proceed. Robert Gillis, take the stand. Getting up with Rome. Gillis goes to the witness stand. Judge Priest arrives in the gallery, and Ashby glances back at him. Your Honor, as uh, I recollect our procedure, for the time being, I'm an ordinary member of the bar. In good standing? Not ordinary, sir, but absolutely in good standing. Thank you, sir. He steps through the gate. Thank you, Con. Then I have the uh, honor of uh, announcing myself as uh, associate counsel for the defense. He shakes hands with Rome. Seeing as the case has... Uh, <clears throat> they said. ...been uh, reopened. Maydu stands before Gillis. Mr. Gillis, were you always a man of turbulent and violent nature? I always left them alone as left me alone. Is that so? What was the name of the man you once upon a time murdered? He points. I, I never looked on it as no. No, it wasn't murdered. A man was killed, wasn't he? Yes. And they stuck you in jail, didn't they? Yes. Priest watches with a smirk. Didn't they? Yes. And the jury found you guilty, didn't they? Yes. Were you sentenced to be hung? No, I, I went up for life. Did you escape or were you pardoned? I ain't a saying. He stands. I won't tell you no more no matter what you ask me. You don't need to. <clears throat> Judge Priest, your witness. No questions, Your Honor. But Uncle Billy, hasn't the defense any evidence to offer in rebuttal, Judge Priest? He approaches the bench. One character witness, Your Honor. Gillis steps down. Clerk, will you kindly call Reverend Ashby Branch? Gillis stops. Glancing at Priest, he walks on to the defendant's table as Ashby approaches. You solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, in case now penny in this court? I do. The Reverend goes to the witness stand. Then he sits. Reverend Brand, before you come to this town, what was your occupation? In my early manhood, before I took holy orders, I had the honor to be a captain of artillery in the late war. In the war of the rebellion? No, sir. The war for the Southern Confederacy. Yes, sir. That's right. He's right. The men of the jury nod. My, my error. One moment, please. Maydew stands. He turns to the gallery. I yield to no man in love and everlasting devotion to that sacred lost cause for which my people fought and bled. But though I cherish all those dear and everlasting memories 
which even the bare mention of that great conflict must awaken in every true Kentuckian's bosom. The one juror appears at the spittoon by a chair. Possible connection between this reverend gentleman's military record... He gets ready. ...and the guilt of this man, Gillis. <laughs> he sits back, satisfied, motioning how he curved his shot and showing off a ribbon on his lapel. The sheriff picks up the spittoon again and moves it in another direction. I think the court will commit no grave legal error by allowing a minister of the gospel to tell his story in his own way. With a glance at Judge Priest, Maydu acquiesces. Yand along, Reverend Brand. As many of you know, I am a Virginian. On the day my state seceded from the Union, I enlisted. I was a private in Penn's Virginia Battery. By the latter end of the third year, I was in command of that battery. All the officers ranking me had been killed or disabled. We lost heavily at Chancellorsville. And at Fredericksburg, we were almost wiped out. We kept our field pieces. We kept our pieces until the end. But we had not sufficient men to man those guns, nor anywhere to turn for more men. There were no more men left to come in. The Confederacy, in 64, was robbing both the cradle and the grave for cannon fodder. Well, sir, I got temporary leave and went to Richmond to see our war governor. I said to him, sir, I've come to you to ask for men to serve my guns. He laughed and said, tell me where they're to be found. I said, among the chain gangs from the state penitentiary. He said, you've come too late, young man. I've freed every convict that might conceivably be trusted with freedom. There are left only the lifers, and I dare not turn them loose. They are working on the guard, building defenses for you to fight behind. He opposed me, but I argued with him. Finally, I won. He gave me authorization, signed it, and with his own hand, affixed the seal of the sovereign state of Virginia. I rode back to the line, sir. He remembers. And I found my chain gang. I told them to drop their tools and line up before me. I told them, if you go with me, you go to face a hell of destruction and suffering and death. But I said, if you do go, you go as free men, as soldiers of the Confederacy. Your past will lie behind you. And your future, if you survive, is in your own hands. And I promise you this much. If you stand fast, if you do your duty, if bravely and honorably you acquit yourselves as men, then such of you as lived through to the end, and some of you will live, are not to come back to this. 
is for you to decide. Those who remain behind, stand fast. Those who come with me, advance one pace. Gentlemen of the jury, I tell you they came at me like a wave from the sea. Every one of them. And as time went on... Sitting, Priest subtly signals to Jimmy at the window. ...of the battalion from hell. Jimmy waves outside to Jeff, who starts playing. Another black man joins him with a banjo, as do others with more instruments. Jeff stands, and the music drifts into the courtroom as Ashby continues. Those men, those felons, with the scars of their shekels still on their legs... They fought for the South like men, none better. And they died like men, most of them. I was one of those men of whom I wish to speak a special word of tribute. He stood out for his courage and his fidelity. For his worth as a soldier and a man. Most of all, for his invariable truthfulness under all circumstances. He was from the mountains of my own state, a man who spoke little, but did much. I saw him once go out under fire during a battle to rescue at his own risk a wounded Union officer who lay there helpless between the lines. Another time, our stars and bars was wrested from our hands. We fought breast to breast that day. This man of whom I'm speaking threw himself on a riderless horse and rode into the thicket and by the grace of God came galloping back from the jaws of death. Our colors clutched in his hand. Outside, a crowd of black people plays and dances. Inside. And another day, when every man who served his gun, excepting him, was down. I saw him when the Union infantry charged, sitting astraddle his useless gun, and with a rammer for his only weapon, waiting for the enemy to come within reach. A countercharge from our infantry saved him. He remembers the charge as the man collapses over sandbags. But he had stood fast. He looks at Gillis. And he was alone. After the surrender, I kept his secret. I kept it to this very hour. Though I've seen him daily at his work, watching over his daughter, providing for her education through me. All unknown to LMA. Shocked, she holds a hand to her chest. Ashby stands and turns to the jury. Gentlemen, as a soldier, I knew that man as Roger Gillespie. You know him by the name he now wears. He points. Robert Gillis. The jury cheers, and so does the gallery. Over Maydew's protests, a crowd swarms toward Gillis, and Ellie May embraces her father. 
Terry steps through the gate. Get out of the way! Can't you see that poor, helpless child needs a mother? She advances as a jury member steps his foot through a drum in the jury box. The spitting juror takes Maydew's wagging finger and shakes it. Maydew gets him away and keeps wagging, so he moves on. Judge Priest leans out the window. That's fine. That's great, Kip. That's great. Keep on going. Keep going. You can have that white vest. Smiling, Jeff opens the coat to show he has the white vest on and dances down the street with his band, his top hat held high. Soon after, the Veterans Parade rounds the square. At the front of one troop, walking in a line, Jimmy carries the Confederate flag, with Doc and Judge Priest on one side, Ashby and Herman on the other. Townspeople wave and cheer from the sidewalk, including Rome and Ellie Mae, with Gillis and Carrie standing with them. Ashby, Jimmy, and the judge run to Gillis and pull him to join the formation. Jimmy hands him the flag, and Gillis walks shoulder to shoulder with him. Further back, the spitting juror pulls his friend in to march along, free to spit in the street. Maydew holds his hat out and bows to the parade. The juror walks by and aims, hitting Maydew's hat. As his comrades carry wreaths, Gillis marches with them with the Confederate flag. The End This described version of Judge Priest was produced for Movies for the Blind. Cast Judge Priest, Will Rogers Rome, Tom Brown Ellie Mae, Anita Louise Ashby, Henry B. Waffle Gillis, David Landau Virginia, Rochelle Hudson Flem, Frank Melton. Jimmy, Charlie Grapewin. Maydew, Burton Churchill. Carrie, Brenda Fowler. Dilsey, Hattie McDaniels. Jeff, Step and Fetch It. And that was Judge Priest. Dilsey was played by Hattie McDaniel, who also played a black stereotype, the happy singing mammy, but is remembered much differently than Step and Fetch It. She went on to play other maids and companions, but transcended the role when she played the Mammy, who faced off against her boss, Scarlett O'Hara, in Gone with the Wind. That earned her the 1939 Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, making her not just the first black American to win an Oscar, but to even be nominated. Another member of the esteemed group of black Oscar winners stars in our next film, with no stereotypes to be found. Patient's name, MacArthur St. Clair, age 37, cardiologist. Aneurysm of the marriage. Patient suffering severe anxiety and attempting to treat condition by working on Sunday afternoons in order to avoid confronting condition. Good morning. Am I going to die? Everybody dies, Mr. Hamill. If you're looking for life everlasting, you've come to the wrong fella. Isn't there such a thing as getting too big? No. I'm pretty certain that your esteemed head doctor is a junkie doctor. 
We should avoid underbooking your caseload so as to force you into spreading your wisdom among other patients. Patients, not your own. What is a Lazarus syndrome? Patients who think that doctors are God-like miracle workers in all things. Now, I might be able to get your heart to start beating when it stops, but I can't make a decision for you. I can't, and I won't. Okay, fair enough. That's Louis Gossett Jr. in The Lazarus Syndrome, next time on Movies for the Blind. To find out more about the movies, about description, and how to subscribe, go to the blog, moviesfortheblind.com, where you can also find out about this podcast, Creative Commons License. If you haven't left us a review on iTunes, look up Movies for the Blind under Podcasts at the iTunes store and say nice things, maybe a few stars. Also check out the Movies for the Blind page on Facebook and the channel on YouTube. More new stuff to come there. The movies are from the Internet Archive, so please support universal access to human knowledge by visiting and donating at archive.org. Thank you for downloading and for listening. Be back next week. Take care. Take care.